Yeah, we were called the Jobbies from Mars. The Jobbies from Mars. <laughs> I don't know if you know what that means in Scottish. This is the Bad Before the Bad Before podcast, and I am your host, Chaz Langston. And welcome to episode 12. Now, the word 12 is the highest numbered word that only has one syllable. There was only six members in the band D12, and at the age of 12, you are legally allowed to buy a pet. So, you know, always giving, always teaching, always learning. You're welcome. Anyway, let's talk about today's guest. Now, our guest today broke onto the scene in the late 90s and now eight studio albums in and five of his own solo albums under his belt he's still on the top of his game bringing joy to our ears with his haunting voice and his beautiful lyrics or maybe the other way around whatever one you think fits best now during this episode we hear about his journey starting from behind the drum kit and ending up in front of the mic we hear about band members refusing to do gigs without their computer chair on stage with them how writing a song for an anti-drug campaign competition got him played on the radio for the first time ever, getting discovered by Steve Lamack, and how he had to pretend that a poo was a pickle. It will make sense, I promise. Anyway, enough of my rubbish. Let's get straight into it, shall we? It's time for episode 12 of the Band Before the Band Before podcast with our guest, Idlewild frontman, Mr. Roddy Woomble. Roddy Woomble, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you very much. Good, good, good. Okay, well, if you're ready to go straight in, let's go straight in. Mm-hmm. Where was you born? Oh, I was born in Irvine, which is on the west coast of Scotland in Ayrshire, in 1976. It was a hot summer. The year before punk broke. Yeah, there wasn't much punk. Well, actually, <laughs> but there was punk going on in Irvine. It's one of those towns that's sort of west coast towns of scotland that you know a lot of people probably form punk bands yeah definitely and uh how was music growing up for you was was your family musical at all i moved around a lot because through my father's work we lived in france and england and uh america and we, we traveled around a lot so um yeah no they weren't so it was, it was in that way it was quite an interesting childhood i went to like 10 different schools and stuff like oh, that no. so, which definitely influenced me uh you know, in my musical life in that way, just being informed by, you know, different cultures and also being able to kind of like be content on my own. That's something I learned very early when I was always the new guy at school. Yeah. So music was very much a thing for me when I discovered it as a teenager, but it wasn't because there was, my mom and dad weren't particularly music fans. I mean, they had, we had tapes. They had like a, you know, we obviously would burn, spend a lot of time traveling in the car and they had a camper van for a while. And they would have like tapes that were well, like the best of the Beach Boys or best of the Beatles and pure stuff like that. You know, it wasn't they weren't discerning. Well, they saw the Beatles and the and the and the Stones in the sixties, but like they weren't really phased by music in a way they didn't. You know, it was just something that was on in the background. You know, can you remember the first kind of music that spoke to you? Yeah, well, I have an older sister. And um, she was quite influential for me in terms of she was really into me. She's two years older than me. And she was she got into music quite early. The Smiths, um, REM. This would sort of be kind of late, late, mid to late eighties. She was into the Smiths and REM and Elvis Costello and Kate Bush and and I would hear all this through the bedroom wall. Yeah. And 
most of my pals at that point were still kind of like teenage, just again get into teenage sort of metal, Iron Maiden, Metallica, that kind of thing, which I do do did like and do like, but uh, it's m- coming from my sister's room. The Smiths and Kate Bush and Ari, and they just seemed much more exotic and mysterious. And so that was my definite early influence. It was probably about 12, 13, discovering these, maybe actually we were earlier than that, 11, 12, discovering, um, you know, Morrissey, The Smiths, R.E.M., Kate Bush, all that kind of stuff. And that was really, I, I made a powerful kind of connection with that, those kind of melodies and they're all kind of outsiders, aren't they? Like yeah. Michael Stipe, Morrissey, Kate Bush. Absolutely. Quintessential outsiders in music. And I, I could really relate to that more than, say, Bruce Dickinson or James Hetfield. Yeah. It just seemed like, <laughs> as much as I like them both, it's just, they're a different thing. It's mad when you break down that whole era, what a what a time that was, you know, because I, I mm. love all those bands as well. And to think that, like, you know, I mean, Morris, Morrissey and R.E.M., what, I guess you could you'd have to say indie but they're one of those bands well they're both one of those bands where you can't really pinpoint them on where they are no they're kind to me they're sort of bands for life i don't know if they they exist so much anymore i'm sure they do i'm sure there's young people that but the minute you find them you know that they're kind of forever and yeah I, you know and that was the way i felt when i found them you don't know like obviously the smiths only lasted four albums but rem lasted for about you know they lasted about 30 years yeah. So, but it doesn't really matter. You know, there's record. No, no, doesn't how many. Doesn't it's irrelevant how many records the band makes. It's like what those records mean forever for you. Yeah. Well, look um, at the Sex Pistols. They're still. They still stand with just one record. Yeah, because it was such a powerful moment in time. That, yeah. When they when they put that out. So yeah. One, two, three, four. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry. So correct me if I'm wrong. You were originally before you were a vocalist, a drummer. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I when I lived in America, when I, I lived in Greenville, South Carolina, we moved there in 1989, and we lived there for two years. So I moved back to Scotland in 91. So those two years were really significant for me, musically, because I moved over to America, like I say, a, a bit enthralled to the Smiths and R.E.M. and the Sisters Record Collection, but also kind of quite into metal, because that was a way of I could make friends with people that, because I was into, I was a role, I blood like Dungeons and Dragons and all that. Yeah. I was like, you know, the Stranger Things guys. Yeah, that was yeah. Basically me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love, I love role playing games, and I hung about with kind of. Well, I was a nerd, so I nerd myself, not to be, you know. Um, and so I moved to America at at thirteen. That was my thing: Dungeons and Dragons, metal. But I had a kind of in, inkling for there was different kinds of music and different kinds of sounds out there. And when I was at American high school. That's when I discovered punk rock, you know, American yeah. Underground punk rock, like, you know, Black Flag, The Replacements, Minor Threat, um, The Circle Jerks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because I met people at American High School that were like into it and would just lend me tapes. And there was a place in Greenville called Manifest Music, like as first kind of underground record store I'd ever been to. And I was just kind of, that was my my thing after that. It was just buying you know seven inch singles and tapes and whatever i could is manifest records still there do you think probably i yeah, don't know i hope so it was it was a great it was a great like oh well, like i saw a kind of high fidelity style kind of yeah record shop. yeah you know, everyone there was in in bands and it was you were always playing something that you never heard on the stereo and the i'd say so you always said what is this and it'd be something that you'd probably end up buying yeah 
proper kind of sanctuary on this, you know, what record shops often are, they're kind of sanctuaries on the high street, aren't they? Definitely. So you can go and feel that you're, you know, you found your tribe. <laughs> <laughs> you feel a sense of belonging when you step in one. How did you end up picking up a pair of drumsticks then? Well, when I, like, so I was at American high school and like I had a few pals, not very many friends actually, but I had a few that were into the same things as I was, Dungeons and Dragons and kind of, like I say, like, be like metal and that kind of thing and so i would we would go to each other's houses at the weekends and and play you know role play games and just hang out like teenage boys do like drink like coke coca-cola and like just look out the window you know what i mean like <laughs> but um as so i was over at their house it was two brothers actually mark and david that um i used to play with and um they had a we found a, they had a drum kit Oh wow! And I was like, "Where'd you get? Where'd you get this from?" And they were like, "Oh, it's one of my. I think it was one of their dad's friends or something." So we set it up. It was it was just like a bass drum, snare, and a hi hat. Amazing. And he, Mark was actually a good bass player. He had a bass, so we just started playing, and no one could really play the drums. So we're all kind of having a shot of them, seeing so, you know, if you know. And that's kind of so we're kind of discovering it straight away, you know. So I said, "Can I take that drum kit because they were going to get rid of it or something?" I said, "Can I take it to my house?" And then we're like, "Sure." So I took it to my house and we set it up in the garage. And when they they came over the next time, quickly Dungeons and Dragons was like forgotten about. And we just wanted to play, you know, music, you know. And so that's when we formed my first band. Um, David played guitar, Mark played bass and I played drums. And we were just rudimentary garage teenage punk rock. Amazing. Did you have a band name? Yeah, we were called the Jobbies from Mars. The Jobbies from Mars. <laughs> I don't know if you know what that means in Scotland. Well, uh, it means taking a shit, right? A jobby is, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we were teenagers. <laughs> it's like, the weird thing was about that is like, obviously, I suggested the name because it was a Scottish teenage boy thought it was funny. Um, but they didn't know what it was. So I had to describe it to them and they were like, you know, they were. It was. This is this. This all deep south. So they, these are guys are from South Carolina. They don't know what what that is. And their mother was very religious. Oh, really? Said, well, we won't be able to tell our mum what that actually means. So we'll just tell her it's a Scottish word for a pickle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they had to live this weird life with their mum. And mum was like, "Oh, it's really good here in the Bamberody." And like, "What's the name?" And they said, "Oh, it's Jobbies from Mars." And yeah, well, she said, well, that's an unusual word. And then they were saying, yeah, oh no, it just means, it just means a pickle in Scot- Scottish. So, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, oh, it's not the greatest name for a, but it's kind of, it's quite a good name for a juvenile teenage punk rock band. It's a great name. I love it. Especially of that like era as well. And especially if you're playing like Dungeons and Dragons and all that sort of stuff, you know, <laughs> it all seems quite fitting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were all, and we were all only 13, 14, so that's yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. You're just always trying to make yourself laugh, really, or each other laugh, rather. Yeah, exactly. When you're hanging about. And a lot of this, we didn't, one interesting thing, cause, because our, our, we were so rudimentary in what we could actually play, um, you know, we didn't try and do covers. And that was, that's an interesting thing for me. I've never been in a band that's played covers. We just straight away started writing or working on our own material, partly because, you know, we weren't good enough to play covers. And I think sometimes when you try and play a cover, you get like a bit fixated on it sounding exactly like the version right. that you know. And you then you start comparing yourself against that and thinking, well, I'm actually really shit at singing or playing the drums or whatever. But if you're doing your own material, you're brilliant at it because no one else <laughs> has done it before. So it's quite liberating in that way. But as soon as you start working on songs, we're like, this is, it wasn't good, you know, and then I still have a, I still have a rehearsal tape with the Jobbies from Mars. Oh, and amazing. It's, it's still kind of like, 
I can listen to it and still kind of enjoy it because I can see, I can feel, feel, I can hear the kind of formulation of ideas and excitement and the idea that we have actually created something together, you know? Yeah. Just still get when I work on songs with people. So it's, it is a feeling that never, never goes away if you're, if you're, if you enjoy music and enjoy writing songs. Yeah, absolutely. That's fucking brilliant. And, uh, can you remember any song titles at all? Oh yeah, I mean there was one called Soccer Balls because that's they don't say football. They, yeah. There was one called um, <laughs> Phil from Mars will kick you. Um, there was one called I see what I sometimes think there's a, one of our songs that had um, what lyrics were Life is hard, major pain in the rear, <laughs> moving, crying, getting old, dying. <laughs> and I sometimes think of that's like some of the best lyrics I've ever written. Because <laughs> it's the ultimate truth, isn't it? Yeah. Life hard, major pain in the rear, moving, crying, getting old, dying. <laughs> and it was obviously shouted over like, you know, that kind of minor thread drum beat and like yeah, yeah. Know, basic riffs. So even back then when you were drumming, you were still writing the lyrics? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically it was because I wrote kind of wrote the songs, I suppose, because... Um, I wouldn't sing them. Mark would sing them, um, but I would write the melodies. And uh, and this started the tradition of all the bands I was in playing drums. I did that. I was because I, I found it quite early on. I had quite and and I don't mean a talent, maybe just a knack for being able to get a few memorable lines and a few memorable melodies to go with them. So I found that you know even from in that first band, I was able to do that. So. I would do that and tell Mark the line to sing and he yeah. would sing it and I'd just drum along. So yeah, that was how we started. But uh, yeah, it was a, it's strange because that's a strange part of America. Um, right. It's called, called the Bible Belt. Right. A lot of very religious people and they were a quite a religious family. And I think the, you know, like people become born again sometimes, born again yeah. Christians. They yeah. went through that and because of that, I don't, I'm not speculating on, but they stopped playing punk rock oh wow and they weren't i don't know if they weren't allowed to or they decided they didn't want to or it was inappropriate for them or whatever but i remember them he came around one day and said he couldn't do it anymore and that was effectively the end of the band which oh, was wow. quite sad because i was just kind of getting back getting into it you know yeah but that was fine anyway ultimately because i was moving back to scotland so i thought okay but then i was determined then to get a band as soon as i got back to scotland i met you had the bug yeah well i just knew it was a uh, I always wanted to be an artist from when I was younger and, uh, you know, f and I knew that I wasn't sure what form of artist I was going to be, but, you know, whether it was going to be a painter or, a, you know, sculptor, or photographer, I was interested in arts always, you know, so music was just this new thing and it seems so accessible and so expressive and also just really fun because you did it with your friends. Yeah, yeah. So that was a really important thing for me to realise that you could make kind of collective art with other people. Do you reckon his mum found out what a job he actually means? <laughs> I think maybe she did, yeah. <laughs> she, she was like, that Scottish boy is a bad influence. <laughs> what happened when you took that drum kit back to your parents for the first time? Because obviously they let you, they're obviously well up for you doing it if they let you set it up in the garage and everything yeah well i mean my mum and her you know like i said at the start of the interview they were not they weren't musical but they were very encouraging yeah oh they're interested in arts and they were yeah they were just thought that you know they weren't the kind of mum and dad to go oh you can't do that they were like oh okay as long as you don't play it after say eight o'clock or something you know yeah so i i and it was strangely because i i when i set it up in the the, the garage i remember thinking how i don't know how to play this really i just know how to like 
but I could feel that I had sort of rhythm. You know, I yeah. could feel yeah. I could. And on television that night was um, the Hard Day's Night, you know, the Beatles film. I remember watching it with mum and dad. And I just watched how Ringo played drums, you know, the cross-hand tab, that yeah, basic yeah. thing that he does a lot, you know, particularly around that time when he couldn't hear, you know, himself play over all the noise of the screams. <laughs> so I, w- I remember just the next day just copying that, that, you know, what he did. And then I just got my head around that and then I could introduce the floor tom, I could introduce the right symbol and other things like that. But so, yeah, I guess I learned from Ringo. <laughs> well, t- technically you're self-taught as well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. And then, you know, as I said, because I, I listened to a lot of like, uh, I love Minor Threat and it was yeah. just really, really fast, you know, like that. It was like what Ringo was doing, but you just speed it up. So that's what every single job is from Mars drum beat sounded like. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of variation. <laughs> <laughs> that's punk rock, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're we're back in Scotland. Yeah. What was next for you? How did you start your next band? Well, I got back to Scotland in 1991, and this was a significant time because I moved back, and it was about it was about September, and this is like Nirvana released Nevermind, and and suddenly like a lot of the music that I'd been listening to, and you know, my sister, because my sister had seen Nirvana before, and oh wow, the uh, new Sonic Youth records and. You know, she just said all that. She was, her finger was really on the pulse for all that kind of stuff. You know, she read. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, so we kind of, we were aware of Nirvana, but we didn't, you know, when Nevermind came, it was so exciting because suddenly it was like, you just felt like there was so many more people that like you could talk to about cool music. And, uh, you know, I was, so uh, yeah, 1991, I moved back and I was kind of determined to form a band, but it took me, you know, I didn't really know anyone. So it took me a while to find a sort of like-minded group of people I'd see, I'd, I moved, not to bore you with the whole life story here, no, but no, moved, this is not boring I moved to America all. from the same town. I grew up in a place called Carnoustie on the east coast uh, of Scotland near Dundee. And we moved to America for two years and then moved back to Carnoustie. Right. So um, I knew a few people, but I obviously hadn't been there for two years and it was kind of a bit, you know. So I reconnected with a few of my friends and one of them, Graham Williamson, was a great guitar player. So that we started to put a band together. And I bought a drum kit from one of his friends, a Thunder drum kit it was. Um, and we set up in my bedroom and the two of us started working on songs. And eventually we found another, you know, a guitar player. And then eventually we found a bass player, all those kind of things. It took a bit, it did take a wee while. It took about six months to a year till we kind of had a band. And that one, that band was called A Duncan Life. A Duncan Life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is marginally better than the job is for Mars. <laughs> a Duncan life. And I'm, is that is that Duncan the name? Yeah. Wow. A Duncan life. Did it, Was it named after a specific Duncan? No, I, I I came up with the name and I've got no idea. I don't really have an interesting story for that. I think we just, we had a, I think that was, the, I don't know. I can't really even remember the conversation. <laughs> I just remember like we didn't have a name and then we were called the Duncan life. It's cool. I like it. It's it's yeah. it's it's original. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, but I we really like to, it. See that summer ninety two. Then that would have been ninety two when we started playing. I don't can life start playing in my bedroom, like writing songs. Again, we didn't do cover versions. We just worked on it. our material. Was definitely influenced more by um, our guitar player Wayne Taylor, who had written quite a lot of original songs himself. Um, he, again, we were all like 
I was, Wayne and Graham are older than me, a year older than me, so I would have been like 15 and they would have been 16. Right. Wayne was, he's a lovely man. I still, I still you know, keep in touch with him occasionally. But um, he was very much into guitar souls. Right. Which was not where I was coming from at all. No, you know, no. from More of a kind of indie rock, punk rock background. So it was all, there was always an element of like, mm, is this going to work? Because he would always suggest a solo and we, me and Graham would always suggest that that wasn't necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I could see like, you know, you'd read about the Melody Maker enemy about bands that had creative differences and you don't really understand that till you've actually sat with someone and said, no, I just, you just can't do that solo. It's just not cool at all. That <laughs> <laughs> made me realise what creative differences actually were, but... But yeah, so um, I'd gone to Glastonbury with my sister in 92. That was the first year I went. I was 15 and she was 17. Um, she just passed her driving test and mum lent her car and we drove down. Wow. <laughs> from Yeah, from just Well, actually, there was, and Graham came as well, who was the guitar player in Duncan Life. And we just had an, I was like, it was like a revelation for me, you know. I'd never been yeah. really to, I'd seen a few bands. I'd seen the Pogues and I'd seen My Bloody Valentine at that point. Um, but I'd never been to a festival and I'd never been surrounded by a hundred thousand people that were into the same thing as me. And you just felt like, you know, every town must have all these people and they've all come together to just like have an amazing time and listen to brilliant music. And I was like, I'm a big, you know, I was blasting me for me. It was really important. It really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things, but it's just the experience of being surrounded by, sort of like-minded people was really kind of mind-blowing yeah it's fucking magic the first time that happens isn't it yeah and 92 was good because it was still pretty small and you know you could be what we bought tickets like a few weeks before it it wasn't like one of these things that's certain you know you've got to register and stuff like that yeah and it was like who had i can't like i can't even we just we were quite innocent in the way that we just told we had a traveling rug and, you know, we have our little stove with our, you know, kettle and all that. And te- and we just put our, travel- our rug in front of the, not in front of the, but up the trees just beside the pyramid stage. Right. And we just, we just watched, sat there all day. We didn't, we just watched everything that was on the pyramid stage. I think we only went around to the other stage to see PJ Harvey. Oh, wow. But largely we just hung out at the pyramid because it was just so nice to be hanging out. And the sun yeah. really sunny. And yeah, I remember leaving thinking, oh my God, I've got to come back here like every year if I can. Yeah. <laughs> But it also made me want to play live. That's what I'm, the point I was making. It's like I'd, I just, I'd sort of, I'd seen a few gigs by that point. But after Glastonbury, I was like, no, we need to try and play it. Duncan Life need to try and play a concert. Right. And then how did that happen? That was actually the downfall of the band because Graham Williamson, he's a wonderful man. He was the guitar player that me and himself. He was like quite, you know, I'm quite an introverted guy as well, but in fact we all were, but he was particularly so, and he just didn't want to play live, he was too shy, he just... Wow. So I would booked a concert at the local, a local a country pub, Kurnisty's a small town, it's surrounded by kind of little country villages and stuff, a pub called The Fiddlers, which as in like, you know, the yeah. violin, uh, in Maniki, which was a little village, country village near, so we booked a concert there. Um, because they had a policy that on Friday nights they had a, it just said live local band. It never said the name of the band. It was just they had a band every every Friday, right. and it would mainly be cover bands. So they booked us, and we told them that we didn't do any covers. And he was a bit like, "Well, you know, you're not going to get paid anything." And we're like, "Well, we don't want paid. We just want to do a gig." Anyway, the gig was advertised in the local paper, and a few days before it, Graham said, "I'm going to have to leave the band because I can't do this concert." 
Oh wow, he didn't want to play that bad. No, and he like he was so he was so um nervous about it that he just it was like one or the other. And that was why the band split. Oh man, I feel for him actually. So and because Wayne really wanted to play the the concert and Wayne went on to play in a band in Queen's that were actually quite popular locally for a few years and played a lot of concerts. So he you know, he got to meet his ambition there to do that. And Graham and I just realised, uh, you know, like we wanted to carry on making music together, but okay, concerts weren't going to be a thing. But I was definitely disappointed by that too. So, um, yeah, the one thing we did do in Duncan Life was we did get played on the radio once. Oh, really? Ah, so you recorded some tracks and stuff then? Well, no, we recorded it on our ghetto blaster in the room. Oh, wow. Old school. It was a competition on Radio T, which was the local radio station in Dundee. And it, they'd got money. It was an anti-deuteray, an anti-drugs song. Right. So we wrote a song called The Boy Took a Message, which was a... Great title. And we, we recorded it on um, a ghetto blaster and we sent it into Radio T to the anti, anti-drugs song campaign and they played it on the radio. A boy took a message, was it? And, and the boy took a message. Oh, and a boy took a message. <laughs> wow. It was, it was written... By this point, we had a singer too. We had Chris, Kristen Davidson was singing for us, so... We got band photos and everything. Amazing. Do you still have any of them? I say band photos. It was my camera on self timer. You know, like, you know, <laughs> and then we all ran round and stood in front of it. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Mm. Oh, can you can you remember any lyrics or anything from And a Boy Took a Message? Um, yeah, can I the what was the course with light on my head and death on my bed? I lie closer, no one can tell. I'm drowning alone and no one can see. Please let me out so I can be free. <laughs> wow. I've got a good memory for lyrics. That, that's, and I'm assuming you wrote those lyrics. Yeah, I mean, we wrote them quickly because I was used to kind of writing things without any kind of like theme. You know, I liked, you know, I, I was kind of inspired at that point by the Beat Poets and Jack Kerouac and Richard Brogan and all this kind of like action poetry and like, you know, just right. ideas of vagueness and... So to write a song about something specific was a bit challenging. And, uh, you know, ultimately it was a bit of a failure at, but um, getting played on the radio was quite exciting for us all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's proper DIY as well. (laughs) The old ghetto blaster trick. Oh, that's great. Can you remember any other Duncan Life song titles? Well, a lot of them are Wayne's. You know, I was saying like Wayne Taylor was So he had a lot. I remember one called Reach Out for a Star. Which was very romantic, and he was a he was a real kind of he wrote love songs with guitar solos, right? <laughs> you know, which is fine. I'm not that you know, but I we I wasn't wanting that. No. But then we were all we were all different styles of what we wanted, and you know, our the year that we existed, the year and a half that we existed, it was just the the best thing that happened was that that one play on the radio. Yeah, well, a lot of bands go a lot longer without getting any play on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this, it's called a sampler. Look, look, you do this. Yeah, yeah, you hear that? Every chorus, bang, bit of impact. And then we do it. Oh, hang on. No, sorry, I don't know how to turn this off yet. Is it? It's one of these. Something like that. Right, what do you reckon? Gives a bit of an edge. So, unfortunately, due to not being able to perform live, that was an mm. end of the Duncan life. Yeah. What happened next? Well, there's one more band for Idlewild, and that yeah. was um, it's still in Carnoustie, so we're a wee bit older now. We're kind of like seven, six, 16, 17, so I'm still with Graham on guitar. Um, we got uh, one of my friends from school, Michael Angus, joined as a singer. 
Um, and we got a bass player called Craig Burst who lived in the same street as us, who was a wee bit older. And he'd actually played lots of gigs. So I think he was a wee bit like perplexed by our bedroom band, you know. Right. Because we were basically quite content to sort of just stay in my bedroom and write songs and record them on. We got a four track at this point too. Um, a Tascam? Yeah, so we're start, we started recording things on four track, um, doing you know separate vocals and things like that. So that we, you know, th- things were moving up, and we started actually to be quite a, quite a good band, you know, because Craig Burst was a good bass player. I was starting to get pretty good in the drums. Graham was good on the guitar, so we're pretty tight, lots of yeah trio. And Michael was quite a good singer. He was still kind of finding his voice yet because he was still starting to impersonate all the singers that he likes, which is what singers tend to do, myself included, when you start. Um, but yeah, we were kind of kind of pastoral pop, you know. It was kind of a bit of REM, early REM, bit of Velvet Underground. There was a band that we all loved called The Catchers from Ireland, kind of jangle pop. Okay. So it was that kind of thing, you know. Um, the Sundays and the Smiths were influences as well and that kind of thing. So we started getting pretty good. And and I, even I had a kind of lyrical idea. It was all kind of quite wistful, but, you know. So, yeah, that, and that band was called Hair Shirt. Hair Shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what the monks used to put on for penance, you know, like it's a shirt made of, like, horse hair. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was not expecting an intellectual reason. <laughs> I thought you were going to just say they were just the first two things I looked at. <laughs> no, it was, um, yeah, well, there was always a reason. That's brilliant. And then we did actually become like, like I guess we were became up, that was the first sort of proper band I was in because we made a demo. We went to a studio, found a studio outside Dundee called Red Barn Studios, and we made a demo, three songs. And then we we, we actually made, we ended up making two demos. We made that demo so we could get some gigs. And we we did play gigs. And Graham, we convinced Graham they we needed, we were good enough to do gigs. And he always sat down to play in my bedroom on this office chair that my dad had in, the, in my bedroom. He was on a swivel office chairs. And he was like, can I take the office chair? And I was like, what, to the gig? And he's like, yeah, that's the only way I'm going to be able to play. So we <laughs> so we, so we were, were loading in. Obviously, we were amps or drums or bass amp. And they had this bloody office chair that we had to take as well. And he sat down on the office chair and he faced away from the crowd. So he sort of span his office chair round so he could face face away. And that was always his thing, you know, all the gigs we played. That Luckily, that was the only one we had to take the office chair to. But he always faced away faced away from the crowd and sat down. Wow, he was like the Jim Morrison of guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we played that gig in the Fiddlers and it was... It was pretty rubbish. It was a bit oh, you tough. went back to the same plate, to the yeah, original it, place. It was easy to get a gig, you know. That's brilliant. You had, you finally had your fiddler's moment. Yeah, we, <laughs> we played there. Um, there was about 10 people. But one song, I remember one song, we had a song called The Analogies that we thought was a pretty good song. And people clapped at that, so we played it again straight away. <laughs> we didn't realise how gigs worked at that point. We were just like, let's just do it again. <laughs> well, if DJs can do the rewinds, why can't bands? Yeah, so that was, but there was such a, a such a significant moment. I remember it quite clearly, like loading out from the fiddlers, just feeling like you would achieve something. Like you know that you know all the bands that I'd gone to see and all the bands I'd been inspired by. Because by this point, I got I got, went to concerts regularly, you know, in Dundee and in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I'd seen lots of bands and I felt like I was part of that because I'd played a gig myself, you know. It wasn't just yeah. in the bedroom with the four track and it was actually like your band were being heard by other people. Okay, only 10 people in the country pub. But so we got another gig at the Fiddlers and then that led to a gig in another pub in Carnoustie 
which wasn't that that wasn't a good pub because they kept the jukebox in while we played in case we were shit. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> so it was that kind of that kind of place. Um, yeah, and then but then after that, after we made our demo tape, we started sending it to places in Glasgow and Edinburgh. Amazing. And interestingly, the thirteenth note, first time we played in Glasgow, the booker at thirteenth note was Alex Capranos from France. Oh Ferdinand. no way. Alex used to book the bands in the thirteenth note that before this was long before Franz Ferdinand when he used to play in a band called the Blisters. Wow. So he um I remember phoning him up and he said he'd heard the demo and he really enjoyed some of the songs and yeah, you had a gig for us, we could support this band on Thursday night. And so yeah, we went through into Glasgow and played at the thirteenth note. And we ended up doing that twice. And then we played in Edinburgh a few times as well. So we started actually being a band that felt like, you know, um not because we were quite tight and because a few of our songs were quite catchy, we could see people were sort of, you know, it wasn't like just a shit band that like people were no. ignoring. Yeah. It wasn't fully realized at all. And there was lots of kind of flaws there too. But at the same time, there was something tangible that to pay attention to. So, yeah. Um, and I realized, but I also, because I wrote all the words and I wrote all the, the melodies, but I was still sitting behind the drum kit, you know, I was starting to think, you know, I suppose that was the first time I was thinking, you know, maybe I should not be behind the drum kit. Well, had you were you doing any like backing vocals or anything like that? On some of the on some of the demos I did, yeah. Yeah. Just like pure like, you know, O's and A's and stuff like right, that. Right, right. Um yeah, it was mainly, you know, Michael singing and I've always loved the economy of like I love kind of economical rock music and I mean that by just like the guitar, the bop, the drums, the bass, the singer, like the Smiths or Black Flag or R.E.M. or something. And I love that. Uh, it's something because, you know, you've only got that to work with, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, okay, you can do overdubs and stuff in studios, but that, uh, we weren't at that point anyway, you know. And and that's, I mean, that's why I did World War II, you know. It was like that kind of, it's easier to kind of, you know, manage your songs that way, I think, you know. And you know what you can, you know, you know your limitations and limitation in art is kind of often freedom as well, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 quite interesting because you don't seem like you've got an arrogant bone in your body. So it doesn't seem like the quest to be at the front is why you'd want mm. to be a singer. Do you think that's because you were writing the lyrics and you wanted... I don't, it wasn't a feeling of like, I want more attention. I'm quite intra- introverted and I'm not really, I'm not drawn to performance or, or or actually being on the stage. But a lot, like I said at the start, I just love the the combination of, of creating things with other people. Like that idea of being in a band was really important to me. And I loved that. I love being part of a band. And I realized that when you write songs and your the songs are good collectively, you go on stage together and you're strengthened by each other, even if you're nervous or whatever, and you perform songs. And the minute you could see people respond to them, well, okay, it was on a very small level with hair shirt. But already you're thinking, wow, it's it's almost like some sort of magic's happening. Yeah, yeah. People are responding to something you've done. But I started to think that, you know, also I was starting, you know, I wasn't really interested in the drums. You know, like good drummers are right. like, they love the drums. Like yeah. good bass players love playing the bass and guitar players. I didn't have any kind of notion about getting better or having like an amazing drum kit. Or I knew I could play them and keep time with the songs, but I was definitely more interested in writing up, you know, writing the words and the melodies than I was about, you know, the drum parts. So it was more that I was thinking like maybe I'd be better off if there was someone else playing drums. But I knew in Hearshot that wasn't going to work. So... I thought, well, <clears throat> I was due to this. By this point, we're all kind of like 18. We're all leaving school. 
So I, knew I was going to be going to Edinburgh to study photography. Right. So I thought I was already thinking like, we had this idea that maybe here, sure, we're going to continue and we're going to come back. I was going to come back and stuff. But already I was thinking maybe when I get to Edinburgh, I'll see if some of the people I can form a band with, you know? Right. And then when I got there, um, one of the first people I met, met like two weeks, literally two weeks after turning up in Edinburgh at a party was Colin Newton, who was the drummer in Idlewild. Right, and we got really well, and we what he wanted to form a band too, and he and be, I said, well, "What do you play?" So I'm, I play the drums, and he said, and then he said, "What do you play?" And I said, "Well, up till now, I play the drums too, but you know, if you play the drums, you play the drums, and I'll sing." So it's almost synergy in a way, like with what you were feeling and where you wanted to go, and then yeah, bang, you it was, two it was I mean, I guess things always happen for, you know. I don't mean like they always have them for a reason. I don't, I'm not, but there is an, there's an element of that with these chance meetings. Like, you know, how come, you know, if Morrissey didn't meet Marr, if John Lennon never met Paul McCartney, if, you know, all these, this, this chance of, I'm not comparing Colin Knight or any of that, but, you know, there is chance that is, yeah, it's one thing leads to another in a strange way, doesn't it? And then you end up in a band yeah. that, you know, went, you know, carried on for 25 years. A quick question off the record. It's definitely not because you couldn't be bothered to carry the drum kit up the stairs anymore. Well, there was an element of that. I mean, I don't <laughs> just started de- having to deal with that, you know what I mean? Because, like, the first gigs and... Because mainly we could borrow the the, ba- the basic backline from the, the venues. So I was only bringing in snare yeah. drums and, you know, cymbals. <laughs> Once or twice I'd take my whole drum kit and I was thinking... Yeah. Partly because my drum kit was so crap. <laughs> it was like, it sounded shit when it was mic'd up. <laughs> I was thinking, oh my god, I'm going to invest in better stuff. And yeah, I've never been a fan of. I was suited for the lead singer role in that way, you know, with (laughs) my microphone. So can we talk a bit about Idlewild forming then? Sure, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, we, like I say, we formed in 1995, the winter of 95. And I met Colin Newton. Uh, and then he knew Rod Jones. So within about maybe a month, we had a, Rod Jones had a friend that played the bass. Rod Jones was a wee bit of a wayward character at the start because he wasn't that keen to be in a band with us because he said he was already in another band, which turned out not to be true. <laughs> <laughs> So, but he was a bit of a kind of, I suppose, what you'd call a sort of scene star at that point. He was very much like hanging about with all the kind of indie kids. It was just the era of Britpop, you know, yeah. which I hated because I was American sort of punk rock fan. Yeah. Britpop seemed to, you know, it just didn't speak to me whatsoever. I did quite like Blur though. Yeah. Um, Modern Life is Rubbish, I thought was really good. But yeah, uh, I wasn't, I was, I was against that, you know, I was very much kind of like an outsider in that way. Um, and I think Rod was probably just a bit wary of it, but then we had a songwriting session in his room and he quite quickly started coming up with good melodies and and I think he sort of thought, well, because I, I, by that point I'd been writing, you know, since I was about 14 coming up with melodies and, and words and so I'd got better at it and quicker at it as well. And I don't think he'd hung about with someone like that really. So I think he was expecting us to do covers, you know. Um, and straight away realized it weren't. And I remember the first practice we had, there was just definitely something there, you know? Yeah. Um, you just, all the bands had been at that point. 
It'd been taken a while to get to a point where there was like a good song with Idlewild. Within the first practice, there was just this kind of vibe that was like it was working. It was the, the different mixtures of characters that we had a sort of slight lack of ability, but they were still good enough. We knew that we could improve quite quickly and everyone had a role that they seemed suited for. So within a few practices, it was like definitely a band, you know, and it was called Idlewild from the start because I'd suggested that our first practice. So. Quite quickly, we had an identity, you know. Amazing. And where did, uh, by the way, Idlewild is definitely the best band name <laughs> of all the ones so far. Where did that name come from? That came from a children's book, actually, called Anne of Green Gables. It's oh, a okay. sort of children's book. And I had read that when I was younger with my mum and sister. My sister loved it. But for some reason, I reread it. It's not like a children's book. It's kind of like, I would be a novel for young adults. But it's quite poetic. Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote it. I'd reread it that summer, and that there's a bit in it when they have this place in the of the forest to go and hide, and they name it Idlewild. And I just thought it was a really good name for a punk rock band. Yeah, because it, no, it's it a fucking mixture great of name. like you know, especially with it was going to mix kind of you know riffs with sort of more wistful words. Yeah. I thought, but then I didn't realize that at one point it was John F. Kennedy Airport in New York was called Idlewild. What was it really? Or, or that there was like an Everything But The Girl album and an Allman's Brother album called Idlewild. You know, I didn't realize that it was a word that had been used a lot in public, you know, culture and popular culture. So I was a bit ignorant of that. So, you know, subsequently when the band got known, people would get asked that all the time. Like, why did you name yourself after JFK Airport? I mean, like, or, <laughs> you know, we'd be like, we didn't. That's from Man of the Giggles. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you had the right answer to back yourself up. That's true. Yeah. And like... How was the first rehearsal with you being like fronting it? How did that feel for you? Well, I feel, I mean, the first rehearsal was fine because at that point I'd met Rod a few times and we'd worked on songs. So it's always this, the idea of like doing anything in front of someone for the first time creatively. You feel a wee bit vulnerable. Yeah. It's not absolutely. the same as like kissing someone for the first time, but it's that kind of idea of like when you, you just have to step into it, don't you? You've got to step over that and just. So, you know, the first practice was, I was comfortable singing, but I was just, I just, like I said, when Michael and Hershaw, you just emulate your, the people that you like to tell you get, find your own voice. You find your own voice through them almost. Yeah. So my favorite singers were like Michael Stipe and Kurt Cobain and Tom Barman from the Belgian band Deus. I loved him. Um, and he was Belgian guy and sang in an American accent. Um, Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club, again, Scottish, but sang an American accent. So, so I thought, I was thinking, well, I started to have this kind of mid-Atlantic kind of accent on the early Idlewild stuff, and I could hide behind that a little bit too, you know, till I yeah. found my own voice. So that's why a lot of the early Idlewild stuff I sound kind of nasally and American, because I'm I'm still working on who I am, you know, through, yeah, yeah. through, through those records. And it wasn't until about Under Broken Windows when you can really just hear me, you know. Right. And like, so what were the early days like for Idlewild? Well, I mean, we were just kind of like any kind of band, like <clears throat> around that era, obviously with no access, the internet wasn't a thing. So we had no access to, you know, being able to record, We, you know, so we just played live. And that's probably the best thing that you can do if you're a rock band. Yeah. Just started playing pretty quickly. We formed in October 95 and we were gigging by January 96 and we kept up. We were all pretty serious about it, apart from the first bass player, Phil, because he was quite studious. So he left the band. He only was only in the band for a year. He wasn't particularly good in terms of like, he was fine for what we needed him for in terms of the kind of music we were making. But as our songs got a little bit more complicated and he was, you know, a bit challenged by that, I suppose, and also wanted to 
be a chemical engineer, which he is. <laughs> oh, well, fair play to him. <laughs> he wasn't that interested in this kind of like, you know, the metaphorical carrot of being in a band, you know, things, yeah. you, might, you might do this, this might happen, all that. But, you know, metaphorical, I mean, like, but, you know, when you dangle a carrot in front of a donkey and they walk towards it, but never get it. But I just realised that was a bit of a random thing to say, the metaphorical <laughs> carrot. Well, not a bad name for a band. It's not. It's not a me- metaphor. It would have to be a metaphorical carrot as well, as well. <laughs> not just metaphorical carrot. <laughs> Can you point, uh, pinpoint a time where you were thinking, we're doing this, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I suppose <clears throat> we were, we're Scottish in the way that we're, um, I'm generalising here, but in a way we can <laughs> never really like, you can never really seize the moment in that way. You know, there's always a sort of like, mm, yeah. you know, maybe we'll be like a bit kind of not, you know, like understated, a kind of not a not great shores of like emotion. No high five and all that kind of stuff. It was, it's all, and it crept up on us over a long period of time. I mean, and also our ambitions were always very, very like simple. Like it was always kind of like almost like aim low. You know, what I mean, that was our motto. Yeah. <laughs> The like, first thing we wanted to do was like to play a gig. So we played a gig. Then it was like, let's play in Glasgow. We did that. Then it's like, let's record a demo. And it was all these sort of baby steps over the first couple of years. Put a seven inch single, that was a big thing. When Human Condition, the record label, put a, our first seven inch single out and it got played by Steve Lamack on Radio One. That was an, a defining moment for us in that way. Wait a minute, we just made a seven inch single, which has blown our minds. We sent it to Steve Lamack. He played it. He said on the air, I don't know anything about this band. They just sent me, the, I just the single arrived. If anyone knows anything about Ida Wells, can they get in contact with me? And the next day we went to the fax. There was an office coffee shop, you know, coffee shop across the road from where we stayed. And we faxed them, faxed the evening session, the details of what, like, you know, the history of our band and that we were coming, we had our first London gig. So that's how it all kind of kicked off. And Steve worked, he at the time, he was a part of Deceptive Records. Right, yeah. Elastica's records and stuff like that. So Steve came to see us play in London and um, wrote about us and just raved about us. And um, and because he worked at Deceptive, said got us in touch with them and said, "Do your next single with Deceptive," and that ended up being Captain, which was our first kind of mini album. So, but I say it sounds like it was. I'm just I'm 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 condensing it into you know that 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 from that from forming in '95 that was like you know. You know, good two and a half years, I suppose, to get to that point. What a fucking dude Steve Lamack is, man. He's amazing. He's, yeah. he's... He did that, that. We're not the only band he did that for, you know what I mean? I know, I know. What a fucking hero. He finds a band that he likes. He's And at that point, he wrote in the Music Week. He wrote in Mel- Melody Maker. Obviously, had the evening session on, on Radio 1. He could really let people listen to him in the industry. Yep. So, like, if he said, this band are really great. And we we saw that effect, but him playing that record, first time we came to London, played at the Hope and Anchor in Islington, there wasn't that many people there, but he was one of them. The next London gig we did, which was about a month and a half later, the Water Rats and King's Cross, it was packed. Amazing. And we're like, oh my God, like, and only we had about four plays on the radio, but he just sort of, it was almost like, yeah, it was, in, and, and you know, because it was packed and we were good, people were like, told their friends and the next time we played and that was very much the first thing we wanted to do was like headline a show that was sold out and in a club and we did that it was like yeah so I mean I don't there's no one defining thing for me because they all came in stages you know obviously yeah we have we have had so many great experiences as a band like I know a lot of people always think of Ida well we get like <clears throat> you know underrated or the should band that should be you know should have been more popular than they were or whatever we get that written about us quite a lot but 
that's sort of irrelevant to me because we I think we made great music and we've yes, had some absolutely. Great experiences and we did did all the things that you could you know you can do in a in a in a touring rock band really. Yeah. What was the what was the first show that you did sell out? Um, the our in London, our first headline show. So it was the garage. The garage, yeah. still going strong. And I remember that's the only time I've ever. I'd say I would say stage dive, but I didn't really stage dive. I was pulled <laughs> into the crowd, and because um, I don't know if you know the garage, but you're basically on yeah, top yeah. of it. So I leaned over, and someone grabbed me, and within like you know a minute, I was in the middle of the audience, <laughs> but like almost like shouting like. Put me down. <laughs> I want to go back on stage. I couldn't, I wasn't seizing the moment. I was far too kind of terrified of my own crowd. Boys, I'm so sorry. I'm so late. The buses were, and there was like, oh, and I could see you bought in all the equipment already. That is not cool. Whose beers are those? I'm fucking gasping. Let's rock. When did you realise that you were a musician? Well, I mean, I still struggle with saying that. You know, I mean, I'm, I mean, although I, I, I do play a bit of guitar and like obviously play the drums a wee bit I mean uh, pardon me I haven't played them for years really but you know uh, essentially I kind of I, I would never call myself a singer you know like I mean like although I do sing in a band and I sing make solo records and sing them yeah if, when you say you're a singer you just assume that someone's like, like you know like I just always think of musical theatre you know what I mean someone's right. like a singer like that I never think of like but I guess I am a singer um but I do struggle with the idea of calling myself a musician, I must say. I don't, I would never, if someone said, what do you do? I would always say, I used to say, like, I worked in a studio. Right. Because that felt like, you know, I did do that. I went and recorded records and like, you That's know, amazing. Sat and, but I, and then, I, then I didn't have to say, I'm in a band and all that, you know, because I was always a bit embarrassed because the next question is, what's the name of your band? Yeah. And more yeah. often than not, they were like, I never heard of you. And then you just, you just feel terrible. You know, so. And then the worst question is, what do you guys sound like? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if you say you worked in a studio, people never, that was the end of the conversation, you know? Yeah. Well, when I first come up with, with the idea of the podcast and was writing the questions down, I wrote this question with the thinking that people were going to go like, oh, you know, when I was like 14, I got my first guitar from Argos. You know, I've got my fucking... I don't know, blur t-shirt on or whatever. And mm. I was like, yeah, I'm a musician. And people would be like, nostalgia. But what's actually been really interesting, much like yourself, everyone's given me quite a, not self-deprecating, but like a really like, like honest, innocent answer of like, I don't know if I am. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is great because um, it's kind of weird. Like, where does that... When when do you, when do you become a musician? When are you? When is it okay to say? Do you know what I mean? Well, I I think it's similar to people. I think it's for other people to to decide. Really, you know, um, it's like, and that's interesting that you said that a lot of the people you interview, and and I would expect that to be honest. Yeah, because I think the people everyone say said. people. It's like a poet or an artist or something. If you if you introduce someone, they say I am a poet. Straight away, you're thinking, are you? You know, <laughs> I'm going to decide if you're a poet by reading your poetry. Yeah, yeah. Same way that if someone says I'm an artist, okay, that's quite a broad definition. So you you know, you it's not maybe not as specific as the poet one, but musicians the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, it's just it's so difficult. But and people have all these connotations and ideas of what that is, you know, and yeah. What constitutes a successful musician is, is, generally speaking, is if you've made lots of money, not if you've made amazing art that's really affected people. Mm -hmm. Really, so I don't know. It's kind of a loaded um, 
occupation in that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's why a lot of people you spoke to, including myself, would be a bit reticent to be like, you know, you know, I became a musician when I was 14, when I, you know. Yeah, so yeah. But I yeah. guess I am a musician. I make records and play gigs, so yeah. Absolutely you are. What What's nice to discover is what I actually thought would be quite funny, would get a funny answer, sorry, is that... It's actually people are getting given a very honest answer of a, mm. accounting. They're like, I don't have to defend what I am or what I do or what's defining me. And as a result, they won't say I'm a musician now. Do you know what I mean? And, it, and it's been really yeah. not like every single person has said pretty much the same thing. No one's ever gone. Oh, I, I when I was twelve and I could play Van yeah. Halen songs. Well, that means they're probably real musicians. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They mean it. And the other thing I was going to say that goes along with it was when you first started playing music, mm -hmm. did it give you a purpose? Um, no, I don't mean, I, I mean, like I said, when I first discovered being in bands as a teenager, I just found it like, yeah, it was very addictive. Right. And it was like, very, you know, it was an easy way to be artistic and expressive with your friends. And it was also sociable, you know, like, because I quite like being on my own. I'm quite a loner, really, but it was a way of kind of, socializing in a really good way because there was a point to it it wasn't just sitting yeah. around sort of, you know watching television or chatting to someone it was like you were making something together and because of that you were getting closer to each other uh and yeah that was the more that was the purposeful thing for me about being in a band and playing music and still is you know it's still the idea of being able to actually spend time with someone and make a connection with them and and create something together because I, I like working with people i don't really like working on my own um i find it a bit kind of um, nerve-wracking in a way that you just start self-doubting everything and like you know it's very easy to be cruel to yourself if you're working on your own but if you're with someone it keeps it much more fast moving and lighter and you know so but yeah I am um, I've always since I was younger I've known that it's kind of well I've been a music fan since I've, since I was 11 or 12 and I've been in bands since I was 14 so it's definitely a I feel like a lifer now you know what I mean Absolutely. Do you mind me asking, how did you guys end up getting signed? Um, we got signed through um, our stuff on Deceptive Records because as soon as we'd done, we did a single with Fierce Panda called Chandelier and we did the Captain Mini album by that point. Um, there was a few, quite a few labels interested in signing us and we signed a deal with EMI. Amazing. Um, food Records initially, but then Parlophone, Food Folded and Parlophone took us on. So that was like, we were on the same record label as The Beatles. <laughs> so it still blows my mind. Did you go and do the big whole office signing thing? And yeah, we signed. We signed our record deal on the jukebox um, at Parlophone, um, the old jukebox, so, you know, with all the kind of old seven-inch singles. I mean, we signed a modest record deal because in the mid nineties, bands were signing ridiculous deals. You know, I mean, right. still loads of money in the music industry, but we were not coming from that place, and we'd put a few seven-inch singles, and we'd established a wee bit of a fan base. So we, they knew they weren't signing something that could be like, and I think that was an appealing thing for them. It was a, a band with a real sense of its own identity, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what they were signing. And they knew, they, 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 I think they saw, because we're still quite young, we're still in our, like 19, 20. They saw they could really develop us into, you know, something more popular, which I guess they helped do, you know, with the remote, by the time of the remote part, we were like in the charts and stuff. And how did you feel when you signed that paper? Yeah, kind of good, but I was also like, like I say, we weren't, you know, we just signed it, then we got the bus, the city like night bus back to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't like, you know, we didn't go out for a drink or anything, I don't think. Amazing. 
Um, just, keep, just keeping it real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did. I, I'm sure we did something, you know. Um, I'm sure we did something. But um, it definitely wasn't like, you know, we were quite serious about what we were doing. Yeah, absolutely. We were like, definitely like, um, and we were going on tour a lot in the next year and we were really kind of, not serious as if we weren't fun. I mean, we had a great no, time. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. you know, we were definitely dedicated to the cause of our band. And this doesn't have to be with Idlewild, but can you remember your best and worst gig you've ever done? Can I? Uh, well, probably, I mean, there's so many over the years playing all the different gigs in different places. Definitely one of the best gigs I remember with Idlewild was in the first time we played Reading Festival in 98, because at that point we toured a lot. Hope was important. I hadn't come out yet. It was a way to come out. So we just had the only thing out was captain. And we were playing mid-afternoon slot about three o'clock, four o'clock, something like that, on the second stage. And I, they just not anticipated how many people were going to come and see us. Oh, so um, I remember we went on stage and we played our first song and the tent was like absolutely rammed. And I could see the security guys saying we need more people. And then the second song, there was about maybe 20 security guards ran ran down to the front because there was people piling over and jumping back on and climbing up the lighting and the lighting rig and jumping. And Fucking it was just yeah. like, it was chaotic. And I was at the center of that thinking, this is like, I'm at Our band are making thousands of these people go mental, you know, and everyone seems to be into this band, you know. And I was like, that was one moment where I thought, Actually, we could be popular because up at that point, we'd just been playing clubs and supporting bands and stuff. And we'd always gone down well. But then suddenly, that was our first festival, first time, uh, you know, and you know, that's why festivals are kind of amazing because it's a, a, a grouping together of lots of different styles of music and music fans. And yeah, that's definitely, that's, and I remember coming off stage after that thinking like all of us were kind of like shaking, thinking like, what was that? That was quite an experience that we just had. Yeah, so that's that's I mean one of the most memorable ones that comes straight to my mind. But there's lots, lots of really great concerts and moments. The worst ones are just the ones when no one shows up. Basically, <laughs> I remember on tour and warning, we're touring warnings and promises in America. And by this point, we knew that we're not we're not going to be re-signed to EMI because we've done four records. We're signed for four records and we've done four records. The the last record that we put out had not done commercially as well as they wanted, and they, we knew they weren't going to take up our option, as it's called. So there was a bit of gloom about that, but the uncertainty of the future and stuff like that. We're on tour in America. The tour was very badly promoted because of this, you know. So we were turning up sometimes at venues after, you know, we were turning up, and then the posters advertising the gig were turning up, you know, like an hour Fucking after. We just no one really cared about the band, so it was a bit like. It was fine in this on the coasts, New York and San Francisco and LA and places like that. Those 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 gigs were fine, but the Midwest ones, that was. I mean, we in in Houston, we played on a Tuesday night, and there was six people paid in. Fuck. And this was a band. This was a when we were still considered to be quite a popular band, you know. And in the UK, we were playing like big places, and yet we're still finding ourselves in situations where six people were coming to see us, and we were like, "What? You know, what? Something's just not worked here because." So there's, and that just brings you right down because you're playing these songs that in in London are playing. You're playing to thousands of people, and you're playing to six people, and and yeah, and I don't know what, what we would have been much better. Anyway, would have been much better signed to an independent label in America. 
Yeah. Because we just got lost on a major label because there was so many bands on it and so many better rock bands or not better, but like easily more more marketable or something like that. So we, we you know, toured it for a few years and just not really got anywhere. So I spent a lot of our time doing that too, you know, so. Yeah. But it's not a hard luck story because the whole experience was, you know, rich and full of memories and experiences and things that I'll, you know, but, you know, that if you had to think of worse gigs, it would always be one that, you know, you're far away from home and there's no one there man that's mad that the posters were getting there like why you were there <laughs> only that only happened a couple of times that wasn't like a yeah <laughs> fuck i feel for you yeah podcast okay the next four questions are kind of like silly little questions, really. So just sort of like round things up. Okay. If you were a boxer, a wrestler, or an MMA fighter, or a fighter of any sorts, what would your walking music be? Well, I mean, I'm not into that kind of thing, so I would have to choose <laughs> something that would be quite unlikely. Like maybe one like a show tune, like yeah. <laughs> I'm 16 going on 17 from the Sound of Music. <laughs> Or study with a fringe on top from Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> that could work. <laughs> could work as like an imitation, uh, intimidation tactic. <laughs> <laughs> I would do something like that. <laughs> okay. What do you believe is the greatest TV theme tune, intro or outro, ever written? Oh, that's easy. Twin Peaks. Beautiful. Fantastic yeah, I mean, that's choice. like, well, actually, I've just been re-watching. I'm a massive fan. Well, I watched too. it when it came out originally as well, but the third, you know, the, the third one, The Return. Yep, yep. Oh, so good. I'm just re-watching that again. I'm not a TV fan. I don't watch a lot of TV, but yeah. it's almost like watching a film. Every episode's a film. And the music is so evocative. You're just suddenly back in Twin Peaks. Yep. As soon as it starts. That's a great choice. I'll tell you what as well. Bob, to me, is the scariest thing <laughs> There's like, I can't deal with, but when, when I watched Twin Peaks, I had to find out who Bob was in real life as an actor to, to, he was, to, he was a prop guy. Is that what you're going to yeah, say? He was yeah. A prop guy and he yeah. Just, uh, David Lynch saw him reflected in something and thought, oh my God, that's terrifying. <laughs> but he's, he's so many people's nightmare. I know quite a few of my friends are like, they, they can't almost watch it because you know, the scene when she looks in the mirror and sees herself, looks the way he looks oh. back and sees him. I'm getting it's scared like... <laughs> now. <laughs> that that scene where the the guy uh, sings that song, terrible song yeah. as well, by the way, uh, and um, they sort of finish singing and they all go apart from one person. I can't remember who it was. It's got to be Laura's cousin, right? Yeah. And then and then Bob just walk. He's just see him down in that corner, just walking until he climbs over the sofa and he just goes into the camera. Yeah. I, I tell, I, I'm fucking getting scared talking about it now. <laughs> I just can't. I couldn't have Yeah, no, it's got, it's, I don't know, something, it's, it's primal because it really affects everyone. And, and Lynch, that's why he's kind of a genius. Yeah. He kind of knows the most affecting things aren't like gore and blood and it's actually like other humans that can make you feel like that. There's a, there's a free part a documentary series on BBC which is all about um, composing music for, for TV mm -hmm. and film it's incredible and there's a whole bit about um, 
oh, I'm not going to say his name very well. It's Antonio. Baglometti, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, and he's sitting, I don't know if you've seen it, but he's sitting oh, yeah, in front of a piano. That. Yeah. And he's just talking about how David yeah, Lynch would tell him. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. It's absolutely it's mind-blowing. As he's, desc- he's describing the moods and you feel the moods. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And that, that um, is it David Lynch on guitar in on that intro? Yeah, well, he, he plays on it. He play, does play music. I'm not sure if he plays on that, but he does mm. play a lot of, on, on a lot of the soundtrack stuff. He's involved in that. Yeah. Because yeah. that is, is kind of... It fits so well, but yet it's got nothing to do with the show, the music at the front. It's just, it makes no sense, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, that's him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Okay. Well, on that note, mm-hmm. what song would you have played at your funeral? A, l- a lot of people don't like this question. <laughs> I don't mind. I mean, I think I'm not going to be there, so it doesn't really make much difference. <laughs> I would say something pretty optimistic, like maybe Forever Young by Bob Dylan. <laughs> that would work. Yeah, something that gets people kind of like smiling and makes them think about like, you know, if they're still alive. What about if you played the Jobbies from Mars' demo tape that you still got? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'll do. Jobbies from Mars will kick you. <laughs> played as my, as my, as my um, coffin goes down. <laughs> Oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> well, if not, maybe I'll have it at mine and make it even weirder. <laughs> okay. And last but not least, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, I mean, I would probably tell not to take any advice from like 46-year-old <laughs> musicians like myself. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I was lucky that we didn't get any advice you know, we didn't have any of these people. Like now, I think it's with, especially with the internet and things like you can get a lot of help, which is also a really good thing. You know, I'm not saying it's not, but when we were starting out, there wasn't that facility to kind of like, we didn't know anyone that was in a popular band. We didn't know anyone that was, we met people eventually. Um, but I don't think anyone's ever given me advice in that way. You know, I had life advice from my parents and, you know, other friends and people I admire. And, but musically, I think we just kind of, you just, yeah, we just kind of, I guess we'd be like, like we're kind of punk rock and we were kind of anti-advice. Yeah. No, this is my <laughs> truth. Tell me yours. It was that kind of, you know, who was it that said that? Che Guevara or something like that, was it? Well, I don't know. What was the quote? Sorry? My truth. Tell me yours. I think it's Che Guevara. Oh, I think right. the actually features used it. For yeah, you. I've seen it from that. I've, yeah, I just assumed Nicky Wire come up with it. <laughs> no, it's it's a, it's a political quote, but it's the kind of, you can use it in the arts as well. It's like the yeah. kind of ultimate truth there. Yeah, and no one could tell you that. You know, you only you got to know that yourself. And um, yeah, so I wouldn't give myself, my younger self, any advice. Fair enough. Well, because I think my younger self probably knows more <laughs> than my older self. You know, because much more instinctive. I think when you get older, you get a lot, lot more scared and to be instinctive. You think you know better, which sometimes you do, but often you don't. Yeah, well, that's perfect because I was going to follow up with, "Do you think you'd listen?" But it sounds like you need to get some advice from your. Younger self. Well, I've got a teenage son, <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting advice. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Roddy, uh, thank you so much for doing this, no, man. It was really, really enjoyable. Really appreciate Thanks it. for asking oh, great. me. No, you're more than welcome. All right, man. All right, Roddy. Thanks again Take so care. much, man. I really appreciate it. All the best, yeah? yeah? Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. mate. Bye-bye. So 
what can you say? Roddy Woomble, everybody. What an absolute legend. I had such a lovely time chatting to him. I've been such a massive idol world since day one, man. It's so cool when you sit down with someone that you've been such a fan of for such a long time and they're such an awesome person. We had such a good laugh, man. And man, that guy has been coming up with incredible song titles since day one. The Jobbies from Mars. Are you kidding me? If anyone's going to any Idlewild show soon, you should definitely make some sort of Jobbies from Mars banner or T-shirt. I'm definitely going to make one because, I mean, the Jobbies will kick you. They've got their own slogan already. It's incredible. But yeah, thank you so much to Roddy for being such an amazing guest, such a lovely guy. Big up to his management who helped make that happen. I really appreciate it. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, obviously, as you know the score, Idlewild's entire back catalogue is available on all streaming platforms. And what a hell of a back catalogue it is. And if you would like to go and watch Idlewild, they are playing at the end of this month in Queen's Park in Glasgow on June the 23rd. They're also on August the 4th. They'll be playing at Stratland Castle at Mugstock. I don't know if I said Stratland right. I don't know where that accent bit come from, but I said it, I meant it, I'm running with it. Forgive me if I'm wrong. And what's also well worth a mention is that Roddy's entire solo back catalogue is also available on all streaming platforms, and it's beautiful. So get involved. He does a lot of solo shows too, so keep a lookout. Now, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can hit us up at tbbtbbpodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you want to follow us on social media, hit us up at the band before the band before on both Insta and Facebook. Thank you again to everyone that keeps giving us these five-star reviews. It's amazing. It means so much to me, and I'm so grateful. I'm sure it does wonders to the podcast. So if you'd like to give us a like and subscribe as well, please do. I massively appreciate it. But if you don't, I don't blame you. So we're cool. We're cool. Thank you again to everyone that's listened to this podcast. You are wonderful, and I love you. So hopefully I'll see you again at the next one. Have a lovely week. Enjoy yourself. Stay cool, if that's what the kids are still saying these days. I love you. You probably, I probably wind you all up a little bit. Anyway, thank you again so much for listening to the Band Before, the Band Before podcast. The Jobbies from Mars are the best band in the world. Enjoy this beautiful weather, if it is still beautiful, and I'll see you at the next one. Bye.